Hello, welcome to another episode of Analyzing Mormonism. So for the past four episodes, I've been sharing um, the, the book club I've been doing with Raymapton Ruminations over the book No Man Knows My History by Fawn Brody. And today I wanted to share Hugh Nibley's response to that book in his booklet called No Ma'am, That's Not History. So Hugh Nibley was an American scholar and an apologist for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and he was a professor at BYU. He taught foreign languages and Christian church history. So personally, other than this booklet, this is the first piece of literature that I've read from Hugh Nibley. I have his book Since Camorra and Lehi in the Desert that were both published through the Book of Mormon Central um, company or foundation. And so yeah, this is a new experience for me. This is my first time hearing his voice through writing. So Fawn Brody's book was published in 1945 and Nibley's booklet was published in 1946. So just right after she published her book. And it is now out of print, so you can't buy it new. I had to find mine in at a used bookstore in Utah. Anyway, so this is my girlfriend reading the book, and I hope you guys enjoy it. And then after this, she and I will give our response. And I hope you guys enjoy it. What brought this on? People are still trying to explain Joseph Smith. That is, as it should be, for no man who claims as much as he did should go unchallenged. Joseph Smith's own story is by no means the only possible explanation of his career. For everything in the universe, there are as many explanations to hand as the mind is willing to devise. Only one rule must be observed. It is the law of parsimony, which states that of all explanations of a thing, that one must be given preference to the exclusion of all others, which is the simplest, i.e. the freest from contradiction, requiring the fewest qualifications and the least elaboration of explanation. The latest explanation of Joseph Smith is Mrs. Brody's. It is not animated by violent hatred. That fact is reassuring, but, strangely enough, irrelevant. The average man is as free from prejudice as Radamanthus when it comes to tensor analysis or the interpretation of Sumerian texts, but that does not qualify him to speak on either subject. And if Mrs. Brody preserved the calm of a nester, we would still have to judge her explanation strictly on its own merits and not assume that she must be telling the truth because she is not mad at anybody. Brody takes an awful beating from the law of parsimony. Far simpler and more to the point are the thumping biographies of an earlier day that simply announced that the man Joseph Smith was a complete scamp, and there an end, simple and direct. With that same admirable simplicity and directness, these authors ran headlong into a brick wall of contradictions, and that was their undoing. Altogether, too much is known about Joseph Smith to let the total depravity theory get by. So Mrs. Brody will qualify it by introducing into the picture an element which she thinks solves everything. Joseph Smith was a complete impostor, the new light teaches, but he meant well. He was just an easygoing rustic with irresponsible ways and an overactive imagination. That takes care of everything. But as soon as we get down to cases, the new and humane interpretation of the prophet, far from improving things, makes everything much worse. Brody's Joseph Smith is a more plausible character than the consummate fiend of the earlier school, and that his type is much more likely to be met with on the street any Tuesday afternoon. But he is actually much less plausible as the man who accomplished what Joseph Smith did. Some kind of an inspired super-devil might have got away with some of the things he did, but no blundering, dreaming, undisciplined, shallow, and opportunistic faker could have left behind what Joseph Smith did, both in men's hearts and on paper. Brody's task is to fit the recorded words and acts of one Joseph Smith to her idea of a well-meaning but not-too-reliable oaf. 
To do this, the words and acts in question must be changed around a bit. There must be a good deal of critical interpretation and explaining in the light of the answer she wants to get. All this is pardonable if it does not go too far. But how far does it go? That is the all-important question, which can be answered only by consulting the book itself. After a glance at those learned pages, we shall be able to point out a real and solid contribution which Mrs. B. has made to the advancement of knowledge. It is in view of that contribution that we are moved to discuss a work that might otherwise have been gravely misunderstood. We believe in giving credit where credit is due, but not elsewhere, and for that reason, take the pains to point out a few interesting aspects of Mrs. Brodie's celebrated biography. A little discourse on method. Mrs. Brodie begins her study with the observation that though there is no lack of documents for the history of Joseph Smith, these documents are fiercely contradictory. In that case, it is necessary for a writer to pick and choose his evidence. Now, by the simple process of picking and choosing one's evidence, one may prove absolutely anything, for which reason it is important to ask what principle Mrs. B follows in making her choice. This is not hard to discover. Our guide first makes up her mind about Joseph Smith and then proceeds to accept any and all evidence from whatever source that supports her theory. The uncritical acceptance of evidence from all sources gives her work at first glance an air of great impartiality. At the same time, she rejects any and all evidence from whatever source that refutes her settled ideas. Thus, page 18, she flatly rejects the sworn affidavit of 51 of Joseph's neighbors because their testimony does not suit her idea of the prophet's character. We would applaud such strong-mindedness were it not that on the very next page she accepts the stories of the same witnesses regarding seer stones, ghosts, magic incantations, and nocturnal excavations. Now, scandal stories thrive notoriously well in rural settings, while the judgment of one's neighbors regarding one's general character over a number of years is far less likely to run into the fantastic. Yet Brody can reject the character witnesses as prejudiced while accepting the weirdest extravagances of their local gossip. In the same spirit, Dogberry and Howe, Bennett, Jackson, and Law, all unreliable witnesses to say the least, become reliable sources whenever their testimony supports Brody and hopelessly prejudiced when it does not. The press accounts there is only one such account, of the charlatan Walters, stated significantly that when he left the neighborhood, his mantle fell upon young Joseph Smith. What is significant about it? What is meant by the vague figure of speech more than that one scamp was succeeded by another? Even Dogberry does not do more than insinuate that Joseph was one of Walters' audience of yokels. Why should his bitter enemies not come out and say he was Walter's disciple if he was? Why nothing but an extremely non-committal hint and a veiled figure of speech if they had anything at all to go by? Yet this is the whole evidence for one of Brody's proudest discoveries. For her, it is an absolute certainty upon which she repeatedly insists that Walter's was Joseph's most particular teacher. Quote, no two of Joseph's neighbors had the same version of the story, unquote, of the plates. We are told, what does one do in that case? One simply accepts or rejects the stories according to one's own fancy. This is fun until one runs up against flatly contradictory evidence that cannot be sidestepped or ignored. Regarding the claims that no one ever saw anything but an empty box, Brody sagely observes, quote, It is difficult to reconcile this explanation with the fact that these witnesses, and later Emma and William Smith, emphasize the size, weight, and metallic texture of the plates, unquote. Yes, how do you reconcile them? Here is Brody's method. Quote, 
Exactly how Joseph Smith persuaded so many of the reality of the gold plates is neither so important nor so baffling as the effect of this success on Joseph himself, unquote. Whereupon she drops the question for good. There may be 10,000 things more important and more baffling than the problem of disproving the plates, but that fact has no bearing on the problem and can hardly pass for a solution in a book, quote, where honesty and integrity presumably should count for something, end quote. She is simply sidestepping the issue, and the law of parsimony screams bloody murder. It must have an explanation of those plates, but such is not forthcoming from our oracle. The Hebraic origin of the Indian is an idea which, quote, seems to have come chiefly, unquote, from Ethan Smith's views of the Hebrews, though this possibility quickly becomes a dead certainty for Brody. Quote, it may never be proved that Joseph saw the view of the Hebrews before writing the Book of Mormon, end quote. Since there is nothing in his own words to give him away, that for Brody is proof that he was careful to cover up his traces. What proves the stealing of the Book of Mormon from Ethan Smith is the presence of, quote, striking parallels, end quote, between the two. This brings up a very important aspect of the Brody method, namely the use of parallels as an argument. It has become the favorite device of non-Mormon writers. Oriental literature bristles with parallels to the Book of Mormon that are far more full and striking than anything that can be found in the West. There are outside parallels for every event in the Old and New Testament, yet that does not prove anything. Of recent years, literary studies have shown parallels not to be the exception, but the rule in the world of creative writing, and it is well known that great inventions and scientific discoveries have a way of appearing at about the same time in separate places. A scholar by the name of Carl Jewell has recently amassed a huge amount of material on the subject, and though we need not accept his conclusion that the same sort of thing that is happening in one place at a given time will be found to be happening all over the world at that moment, still his vast volumes present a great wealth of undeniable parallels. The fact that two theories or books present parallelism, no matter how striking, may imply a common source, but it certainly does not in itself prove that the one is derived from the other. We know, thanks to Brody, that there was a great and widespread interest in the Indian problem in Joseph's day, and we also know that these people of that day had a way of referring everything to the Bible. In that case, it is hard to see how anyone could have avoided the Indian-Hebrew tie-up. Mrs. Brody sees parallels everywhere. To cite a few of her howlers, there is a case of a herdsman who kills a number of rustlers with a sword, not a sling. Now, herdsmen have been fighting with rustlers since the dawn of time, but for Brody, this is simply a direct steal from the story of David and Goliath. Again, the barges of the Jaredites, quote, contained everything which the settlers might need on the new continent, end quote. Like any Chinese junk, Viking ship, or the Mayflower itself, in fact, ships have a way of carrying with them whatever the personnel will need. Brody, however, knows that the whole thing is a dishonest adaptation of Noah's Ark. Certain fortifications of earth and timbers mentioned in the Book of Mormon resemble those in western New York. Also, we add, in Russia, England, Africa, France, China, and everywhere else. Such structures are universally common to a certain type of warlike culture. At one place in the Book of Mormon, atheism is denounced. Since there were atheists on the frontier, Brody knows that the whole idea is simply an adaptation of the local scene. The fact that atheism has been an issue in sundry civilizations since the world began means nothing to our author. She chooses her parallels as she chooses her evidence, where it suits her. Sidney Rigdon once, in an article, openly quoted from Thomas Dick's Philosophy of a Future State. That, to Brody, proves that Joseph Smith, quote, had recently been reading the book, end quote. 
Dick mentions the old familiar doctrine that the stars may be inhabited by intelligent progressive beings. So Brody knows that all the prophets, quote unquote, later teachings on the subject, quote, came directly from Dick, end quote. He could not very well have got his earlier teachings from Dick, though his later teachings are simply a continuation of them. Yet as soon as a work appears that resembles what he is doing, Brody immediately pounces upon it as the prophet's only source. If she would show how the doctrine of progress was stolen from Dick, the lady should not have been at such pains to show that progressivism had been a basic part of its background from the first. A useful form of parallel is the identical anecdote. To prove Joseph Smith's dishonesty in operating the bank, quote, several apostates at different times related an identical anecdote, end quote, about money boxes. Now, identical anecdotes can be assumed to indicate a common source, but no more. They say nothing as to the nature of that source or its reliability. For Mrs. Brody, the fact that they are identical proves not that they are commonly derived, but that they are actually true. What kind of history is that? The greatest possible wealth of identical anecdotes attests the orgies in the temple. And yet Brody does not hesitate to scout the lot as absolutely worthless, identical or not. How infinitely weaker is the whispered talk, which attests the activities of the Danites? Yet Mrs. B accepts it, forsooth, because it is, quote, fragmentary, to say the least, but consistent, end quote. The stories once current about the nocturnal orgies of the early Christians and the child-eating rites of the Jews were not too fragmentary and were remarkably consistent, only they weren't true. Quote, bald parallels with Masonic rites, end quote, the lady finds particularly crude. How did he dare it? Why didn't he disguise it? The answer is that, to those who know both, the resemblance is not striking at all. It is not nearly so striking as the resemblance between the church Joseph Smith founded and the other churches. And yet, even though the Mormon church and these institutions present one parallel after another, they are really totally different in form and meaning. Speaking of parallels, however, one cannot pass by one of the most remarkable studies in religious parallels ever written. The name of the most learned man who has ever made a study of the Mormons and one of the best informed men who ever lived does not appear in Mrs. Brody's pages. At the end of the last century, the great tradition of European scholarship in the grand style culminated in the person of Edward Meyer. If he did not have the stature of some earlier scholars, it is certain that he was in a position to survey and assimilate more of the learning of the past than any human being before or since his day. To his famous rotunda at the University of Berlin flowed, as it has never flowed since, all the learning of the ages for his examination and exploitation. No other man ever combined in the learning both of the East and the classical world in a work of such high and lasting authority as Meyer's Geschichte des Altertums, the ultimate and, in fact, the last general history of antiquity to be the work of a single mind. Now, this man had a particular interest in ancient religions, and it occurred to him that in Mormonism he might study at first hand how a real religion gets started. So impressed was he by the possibilities of such a study that he packed up and went to Utah in 1904 to devote a year of his priceless time to studying the Mormons. Few churches have had the good fortune to be examined at first hand by a man of such vast learning and complete impartiality. For in keeping with the high Wissenschaft of his day, Meyer himself professed no religion. He was neither partial nor hostile to the Mormons, who, as far as his feelings were concerned, might have been beings on another planet or a heap of ants. Meyer's entire Ursprung und Geschichte der Mormonen is a study in parallels comparing the new religion with revealed religions of the past. 
While grandly contemptuous of Joseph Smith's low coefficient of culture, the great savant illustrates at length the exact identity of his church both in atmosphere and sundry particulars with that of the early Christians. A striking and irrefutable parallelism supports Mormon claims to revelation. With perfect right, they identify themselves with the apostolic church of old. The similarity extends to the faults as well as the virtues of the prophet and his followers. They may be matched at every point by the faults and virtues of the ancient prophets and the ancient church. We shall have occasion to refer to Edward Meyer a number of times below, not because he was favorably disposed, he is in fact far less sympathetic than Brody, but because with his infinitely greater knowledge he reaches such totally different conclusions. He is a necessary control in testing our author. Incidentally, the faithful need not be too utterly crushed by Brody's erudite announcement that the word Nauvoo is purely a figment of Smith's imagination, since no less an Orientalist than Meyer himself is naive enough to be taken in by the prophet's ruse. He observes that the word is a plain transliteration of the word Nava, which is feminine, the proper gender for place names, and happens to mean the beautiful. Mrs. Brody can put her stuffed morning dove back into its box now. Her philology is of the same brand as her history. Evolution at any price. Of all Mrs. Brody's preconceived ideas, the most fundamental is her certainty that Joseph Smith did not receive revelations. That sudden and dazzling enlightenment, which is the essence of religious experience of the highest sort, is unthinkable in his case. All his own statements on the subject are to be discarded out of hand. To Brody, quote, there are few men who have written so much and told so little about themselves, end quote. Which is simply to say that though Joseph Smith tells a great deal about himself, Brody does not choose to believe it. Instead, she will cling to the theory that all the prophet's thought and action was the result of a slow and gradual evolution. This is an easy mechanical rule of thumb that may be employed to make any thesis sound very scientific. The first objection to it Brody ignores entirely, namely, the well-known fact that great religious conviction is usually born of sudden insight. Other religious leaders may have their moments of inspiration, but in Joseph's case, everything is slow and gradual. Barring this objection, how does Mrs. Brody support her evolutionary theory? To begin with, there was no first vision. True, such visions, quote, were the common folklore of the area, end quote, and Joseph was the most imaginative youth in the world. Still, he had no vision, not even a false one. The proof is that the newspapers say nothing about it. The argument of silence is always a suspicious one, yet how much more suspicious when we are told that, quote, there are no detailed descriptions of the revivals in Palmyra and Manchester when they are at their wildest, end quote. If the press ignores the revivals at their wildest, why should it not ignore a mere episode of the movement? Joseph Smith specifically says it was the ministers who united to persecute him. It was persecution from the pulpit, not, as Brody insinuates, a sort of militant mob movement. But, says Brody, these same newspapers, quote, in later years gave him plenty of unpleasant publicity, end quote. In later years, he was an important public figure with a large following. Their silence at this time merely proves his own statement that he was, quote, an obscure boy, end quote, and anything but news. If Joseph Smith claimed to have had a vision in 1820, quote, the newspapers took no notice of such a claim, either at the time it was supposed to have occurred or at any other time, end quote. Therefore, we can only conclude that no such claim was made either in 1820, quote, or at any other time, end quote. The last clause nullifies the whole argument, for if the silence of the newspapers is proof of anything, then Joseph Smith never at any time claimed to have had the vision, which Brody knows is false.
However, she hastened to corroborate the silence of the press with the testimony of Master Dogberry. Quote, it is well known that Joseph Smith never pretended to have any communication with angels until a long period after the pretended finding of his book, end quote. Even if Dogberry were a reliable witness, which he definitely is not, we can only ask, well known to whom? Why, indeed, to the thousands of people to whom the prophet never mentioned his visions. A million people in London and Paris could have sworn affidavits that Joseph Smith never told them a thing about the angel. The entire city of Peking and the large areas of central Sudan could honestly report they had never been informed of Moroni's visit. That Joseph Smith should not noisily divulge the great and sacred things he had been ordered to keep secret does not seem possible to Brody. If the first vision was so, quote-unquote, soul-shattering, how, she asks triumphantly, could it have, quote, passed totally unnoticed in Joseph Smith's hometown, end quote. It never occurs to her that there are things, especially if they are of a transcendent and soul-shattering nature, which one does not run off to report to the press and the neighbors. Joseph reported his vision only to his family and to a minister he thought he could trust. It was the minister who caused the trouble. What was the first vision then? A remembered dream, says Brody, created sometime after 1834, for, quote, dream images came easy to this youth, end quote. In 1834, that is, but not in 1820. As a final clincher to her argument of silence against the first vision, our author points out that in 1820, Joseph was not religious at all. Quote, he reflected the irreligion and cynicism of his father. He was merely a likable ne'er-do-well, immune to religious influence of any sort. End quote. Later on, after the first vision has been thus debunked and forgotten, in order to prove something else, Brody flatly refutes all these judgments as worthless. Quote, it is clear that he was keenly alert to the theological differences dividing the sects, and was genuinely interested in the controversies. End quote. Now it is his version she's accepting, and that, in the teeth of all testimony, to the contrary. If that much of his story turns out to be true against positive testimony, what about the rest of the story? There is no contemporary mention of Joseph's religious propensities, and yet those propensities are real, Brody decides. The same sources fail to mention his most intimate and hidden religious experience. Therefore, such an experience never occurred, Brody decides. The next major issue is the Book of Mormon. Quote, for a long time, we are told, Joseph Smith was extremely reluctant to talk about the plates, end quote. Extremely reluctant indeed. Why didn't he simply let the matter drop? Because, quote, once the masquerade had begun, there was no point at which he could call halt, end quote. Why not? Everyone would have been glad to forget the business. If his own family believed implicitly in the plates they never saw, they certainly would believe in any explanation he might give for their disappearance. They willingly accepted his story later that the angel had taken the plates back. And was Joseph, of the super-resourceful imagination, devious, cunning, agile, and utterly opportunistic in the matter of the Book of Mormon, the one to be at loss for explanations? Why did he hang on to the plates that no one could see, that only made trouble, that he hated to talk about? Surely he, of all persons, could think of a better game than that. And at the time, remember, he had absolutely no conception of the Book of Mormon to be, according to Brody. The writing of the first 116 pages was, quote, painfully slow, for Joseph had yet to learn how to write, end quote. A long and difficult process, at best. 
Yet less than a year later, we find him tossing off a 275,000-word manuscript in three months. This feat simply proves to Brody that Joseph Smith's stupidity has been deliberately exaggerated. He was really rather smart. Only she resolutely refuses to face the problem she has raised. Here was a man of 22 giving free rein to a, quote, completely undisciplined imagination, an imagination that ran over like a spring freshet in a riot of intense color and luxuriant detail, a wild, unbridled fancy that was not to be canalized by any discipline, end quote. The man sits behind a curtain and dictates to a semi-literate peasant on the other side, quote, none of Joseph's secretaries knew the rudiments of punctuation, end quote. He simply dictates. He takes no notes and holds no conferences, for he must impress his secretaries and not appeal to them for aid. Once a sentence is spoken, quote, revision was therefore unthinkable, says Brody. What a hilarious document this will turn out to be. What an impossible tangle of oriental vagaries. What threads and tatters of half-baked narrative losing themselves in contradictory masses. What an exuberance of undisciplined fancies flying off at wild tangents. What a wealth of irrelevant sermonizing at unexpected moments, as in the Quran. What a collection of bizarre conceits and whopping contradictions it must be. Surely all one needs to do is cite a page of the stuff, any page, to expose the whole business. A few obviously faked passages will do the trick far more simply and effectively than the laborious chapters Madame Brody devotes to it. Why the laborious chapters? Because the inevitable flaws of a book produced in the manner Brody describes strangely fail to appear. Instead of an opium dream, we find an exceedingly sober document that never flies off at tangents, never loses the thread of the narrative, which is often quite complicated, is totally lacking in oriental color, in which the sermons are confined to special sections, and which, strangest of all, never runs into contradictions. Joseph might get away with his quote-unquote outrageous lying in little matters, but what outrageous liar can carry the game to the length of the Old Testament without giving himself away hundreds of times? Brody doesn't say. Early in her book, the lady prepares us for the Book of Mormon by making much of Joseph's gaudy imagination, and especially of his skill in holding everybody spellbound for hours by his exotic and colorful tales. Why, then, is the Book of Mormon his best effort simply, quote-unquote, chloroform in print, lacking all the qualities for which the author was remarkable? Why does the language, with its strained and remarkably Semitic structure, in no way resemble his own vigorous, extravagant prose? To prove that the Book of Mormon was the product of gradual evolution, Mrs. Brody maintains with great insistence that until the first 116 pages were finished, it was not a religious book at all, but, quote, merely an ingenuous speculation, a mere money-making history of the Indians. As to the plates themselves, no divine interpretation was dreamed of, yet all along these plates had been too holy to be seen, end quote. Nay, according to Brody, Joseph maintained that the very sight of them would strike one dead, and it never occurred to him for a moment that such a singularly holy document might have even the slightest religious significance. To demonstrate how the book evolved, Brody observes that it improves in style and story as it goes along. That is her version. To others, the first part of the book is by far the most interesting. Anyway, as he was finishing it up, the prophet, being worried about the scientific aspects of what he had produced, decided, according to Mrs. Brody, to add another book to it. In this book, designed specifically to correct the unscientific tone of the rest, he was far more careless than ever before, mentioning all sort of domestic beasts, quote, when it was known, even in his own day, and very well to a man of his sly researches, that Columbus had found the land devoid of these species, end quote. 
In criticizing the Book of Mormon or any of the other writings of Joseph Smith, it is necessary, first of all, to find out what these writings say. The theories and doctrines which Mrs. Brody exposes are not found in these books, but are picked up from various people's ideas about them. The Book of Mormon has suffered particularly from a glib jumping at conclusions by its attackers. The book describes the doings of, quote, a lonesome and solemn people, end quote, who do not claim for a moment to be the sole inhabitants of the hemisphere. When Brody talks of mound builders and Mongolians, she is not talking about the Book of Mormon at all. She is setting up a straw man for her science to disembowel. Having finished the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith, quote, was rapidly acquiring the language and even the accent of sincere faith, end quote. He had no sincere faith, you understand. What he had been through in the past had been merely drilled to improve his accent. Next, quote, he slipped into the role of prophet with ease, without the inner turmoil that preceded the spiritual fervor of so many great religious figures of the past, end quote. The fact that Joseph is the only prophet, true or false, who never once gave evidence of doubting his calling, closely engaged the attention of the great Edward Meyer, to whom the explanation is obvious. The prophet had a vision, a real vision, right at the outset of his career. If we do not accept that interpretation, we must follow Mrs. Brody's psychological gymnastics. Joseph Smith was a deceiver, she decides, and, quote, the casual reader will be shocked by his deceptions in the field of religion where honesty and integrity presumably count for something, end quote. He had no honesty or integrity. Instead, he had a highly compensated but very real sincerity. However, he had no real faith. And so now you know, quote, what Joseph created, our authority tells us, was essentially an evangelical socialism which made up in moral strength what it lacked in grandeur, end quote. So you see the, quote, completely undisciplined imagination, devoid of honesty and integrity, and lacking, moreover, the diligence and the constancy to master reality, end quote, produces an organization noted for its lasting stability and characterized by great moral strength. What kind of reasoning is that? If there's anything which should mark a brainchild of Brody's Joseph, that would be a tendency to grandeur and a lack of moral strength. Just the opposite is found to be the case. Next in the process of Joseph's evolution, an amazing thing happens. He performs a miraculous healing. Quote, Joseph must have been overwhelmed by this miracle, says our shrewd informant, for he had no idea how common were such occurrences. End quote. No idea, and that after Brody has been at pains to tell us how he had grown up in the world of, quote, faith healers and circuit rider evangelists, end quote, and camp meeting miracles. Miracles of this sort had been his everyday fare from infancy, and yet, in 1830, he has no idea that faith cures are common occurrences. His performance is not half as overwhelming as Brody's discovery. Shortly after this, Joseph founds the church and, quote, with an insight rare among the prophets of his own generation, he did not make a complete break with the past. He continued the story. He did not present a new cosmology. In her summing up, however, our author takes the prophet severely to task for this insight and speaks bitter words. Quote, within the dogma of the church, there is no new sermon on the mount. Why should there be? The old one is good enough. No new saga of redemption. End quote. Joseph Smith, according to her, should have brought a new saga of redemption. She is actually disgusted with the man because he makes no attempt, absolutely none, to displace Jesus Christ. She is equally disgusted when at this time he speaks through revelation, depending on God rather than, quote, standing squarely on his own feet, end quote. This to her can only mean that he is, quote, still troubled by a sense of inadequacy, end quote. 
This sort of forced and predetermined reasoning makes one wonder, but no more so than her observations on the coined word telestial, and the idea of a third degree of glory which is as that of the stars. It is almost unbelievable that anyone presuming to write on religion should not be perfectly familiar with this very well-established and ancient doctrine. It is regular old stock-in-trade in ancient times, though the sources were not accessible to Joseph Smith. They are accessible to Brody, if she is competent to judge of religious matters, and, true or false, the doctrine is anything but the fantastic aberration she makes it out to be. At the end of 1832, we find Joseph Smith at last, quote, taking himself very seriously as a prophet, end quote and after the Book of Mormon and the revelations and visions founding the church. He is, moreover, quote, beginning to grasp something of the tremendous potentiality of his power, end quote, that after his repeated descriptions of himself as the key character in the dispensation of the fullness of times. Yet at the end of 1833, he is, quote, racked with a sense of impotence and irresolution, without substantial certainty of the divinity of his mission, end quote. It will be seen that Brody's argument throughout the whole period rests ultimately on nothing but her own insight into the inner, nay, the unconscious mind of the prophet. Keeping to the evolution-at-any-price method, Brody notes that in 1834, quote, Little by little, Joseph came to understand how basic were the animosities between his people and the old settlers, end quote. For, of course, it would never occur to him that there might be a basic animosity between his small and peculiar people— and what he had repeatedly described as the doomed and wicked world of the last days. It was only with the troubles of Zion's camp, we are told, that he was shocked by a, quote, first-hand acquaintance with the ferocity of anti-Mormonism, end quote. The affair in Ohio, where he had been the special victim of concentrated and deadly mob fury and the awful times in Missouri, could not possibly have made an impression on him, for don't you see, all this is, is a matter of slow and gradual evolution. Now comes a, quote, subtle change in his public attitude toward learning. Flinging aside his cloak of omniscience, not a very subtle gesture, he no longer exulted in his lack of learning, end quote. How a pretension to omniscience can go hand in hand with pretensions to gross ignorance is not clear, especially since the omniscience was of a very tangible sort, dealing with all kinds of ancient languages and a scientific truth. Quote, now he was at last pursuing knowledge the hard way, End quote. And Brody applauds, but in doing so she raises and ignores a very tough question. The hard research necessary to have produced the Book of Mormon, even as a work of pure fiction, must have been colossal, and if there were no such research, then its production was at least a hundred times harder. The remembering of all those details without notes, the preservation of an even tone and regular flow, and that without any revision or rewriting, or shuffling of notes, the mere writing of a big book, that takes hard thinking. It is a book, moreover, that, quote, shows elaborate design, its narrative is spun coherently, and it demonstrates throughout a unity of purpose, end quote. According to Brody, to have produced it with all the notes and aids and reference books in the world would have taken hard work. Yet our guide insists that Joseph Smith never studied the hard way until 1833. If this is so, how did he produce the Book of Mormon? Yet he no sooner suffers this change of heart than we find the prophet basically reverting again, quote, into accustomed paths and dictating a translation by direct inspiration from heaven, end quote. The fact that he is not keeping the rule and evolving according to schedule disgusts our researcher. Then, in 1836, being a man with, quote, a hard core of common sense and a shrewd understanding, end quote, and moreover a complete and resourceful opportunist, 
and much worried about the scientific risks his Book of Mormon was running, Joseph Smith proceeds to lay himself wide open to the ridicule of scholars by a number of very daring Egyptian interpretations. The only way to judge these is to present the documents to Egyptian scholars who have no knowledge of their history in America and compare their judgments with each other and with the prophets. This has never been done. If we are to believe the latest authoritative utterance on the subject, the dogmatic certitude of another day may well yield to the possibility that the real meaning of many Egyptian texts still eludes us. At any rate, it is anything but the open and shut proposition that Brody, the glib English major, makes it out to be. In the affairs of the bank, the saints were, quote, robbed, abused, and insulted, end quote, by the prophet. Only strangely, they were not aware of the fact or seemed actually to enjoy it. It is not odd that, quote, the Gentiles shook their heads in wonder, end quote, at this strange contradiction. It is odd, too, that only after this merciless exploitation, quote, slowly something of the ruthlessness and cynicism of the frontier began to seep into his own thinking, end quote. It is true that, there is no trace of cynicism in his acts or his writings, you understand. It is only in his thinking. In 1842, after years of temple building, Joseph Smith suddenly becomes a mason and steals all their rights. Yet the temples do not change their design or their meaning. The founding of an endowment house and a temple at the same time in 1841 shows, as Meyer observes, that the temple rights were well established before then. In founding the rites, quote, it is doubtful whether Joseph sensed the truly staggering implications, end quote, of the system. More than ten years before, Elijah himself had brought the keys to this work, quote, lest the whole earth be smitten with a curse, end quote. But Joseph failed to realize that it was a really big thing. Repeatedly, our guide refuses to give Joseph Smith credit for knowing what he was about, in spite of his own emphatic declarations on the subject. She knows that he is really undergoing a slow evolution, stumbling blindly forward from one surprise to the next. Thus, she can give us the glib assurance that, quote, Joseph laid no great emphasis on the temple ordinances, end quote, even though the one consuming interest of his life was temple building. He was simply interested in, quote-unquote, pomp and spectacle of the temple. Then where are the candles and drapes, the bells, incense, jewels, and glass and gold? Where are the chants and processions, the scarlet and purple, in short, all the legitimate oriental fixtures of other cults? Where are the old accepted and surefire properties of, quote-unquote, pomp and spectacle? Christian and pagan in every age, why are the temples so austere? Where is the, quote-unquote, intense color and luxuriant detail he loved. It is simply another case of the facts stating one thing and Brody stating another, basing her assertions on her own imponderable knowledge of Joseph's inmost mental processes. As he approaches the end of his career, it is, quote, now easy for him to believe that God had willed his success. After what he has been through, it is about time. Yes, quote, Joseph was coming to look upon himself as the key figure in the setting up of a great religious kingdom, end quote. And what, pray, did he think he was doing all those years during which he was receiving revelations by the dozen, writing the Book of Mormon, building temples, establishing the church, and whatnot? Was that all just a game with no idea behind it? Next, an Episcopal divine claims that Joseph Smith said a Greek psalter was really Egyptian. In the speech in which he gives himself away, Joseph is quoted as saying such things as, quote, them characters is like the letters that was engraved on the golden plates, end quote. Now, Joseph Smith in 1842 never made that remark. The description of the grotesque illiterate is a false one, not merely, quote, exaggerating the imperfection of Joseph's grammar, end quote, as Brody claims, but exaggerating to a degree which amounts to pure fabrication. 
The language is invented. Whole volumes of Joseph's own words have survived from this period. The character is totally out of keeping with the prophet's fine style and grand manner in 1842. It is the picture and the language of another person that the Reverend Caswell does not scruple to invent. Yet this book, published in England, is the only evidence for the story. Since inventing stories about Joseph Smith was a popular parlor game with respectable people, and since Brother Caswell is not over-scrupulous and is certainly over-eager, what value is to be placed on the story at all? It needs corroboration, and Brody finds such in a most wonderful manner. When some time after this most dubiously attested event, a really clever trap is set, Joseph does not walk into it. That, for Brody, proves the Caswell story, for why was he so devilishly clever unless, quote, he had been made cautious by the Greek Psalter trick, end quote. This is known as playing with loaded dice. It usually gets a D- on a term paper. Comes the problem of polygamy. Quote, Paul had said that in heaven there would be no marriage or giving in marriage, but Joseph taught that this would not apply to his saints. End quote. Quite the contrary. It is the literal acceptance of this very doctrine that makes the endowment work on this earth so urgent. It is remarks like the above that betray a complete misunderstanding or willful distortion of the most elementary aspects of Mormonism. They also betray something else. Mrs. Brody deals lightly with the Holy Writ, for it is not Paul but Jesus to whom the remark is attributed by no less than three Gospels. To explain the loyalty of sensible women to the institution, Brody can think of no better line than her old chestnut, the doctrine somehow has great magnetism. In her treatment of the subject, her sources are extremely weak. In any city in the United States, almost any day of the year, young women may be found making vivid, full, circumstantial, and sincere accusations against attackers which are found upon investigation to be nothing more than the objects of their own overwrought desires and imaginings. This does not mean that such accusations are necessarily false, but it does mean that they call for corroboration. And better corroboration than the words of J.C. Bennett, whom Brody willingly condemns as untrustworthy, but only after his words have sunk in. In the matter of Joseph Smith's wives, Mrs. Brody feels free to pick and choose at will. Some of the marriages were entirely spiritual, she freely admits. Not at all, but some. And by pure inference, she can tell us just which were and which were not. She never explains why, with his passionate desire for progeny, he had so few children. By the end of 1843, to fit the evolutionary scheme of things, quote, Joseph was now fully intoxicated with power and drunk with visions of empire and apocalyptic glory. He by now had become a law unto himself, with utter incapacity for contentment with a moderate success. Yet this maniac suffered no illusions about his chances of winning the supreme political post in the nation, end quote. His campaign utterances were models of acumen and common sense. Quote, what other voice in all this madness was so sane? End quote. Asks Don C. Seitz in his study of the campaign of 1843. Yet Brody passes the speeches and writings of the campaign by in perfect silence. They would destroy her smooth curve of evolution. Still more wonderful, at this time, his idea of the kingdom of God on earth becomes, quote, subtly transformed by a mere symbol to a thing of substance, end quote. Brody entitles her chapter on the affairs of Kirtland many years before, My Kingdom is of This Earth. Now she decides that from the beginning, the whole thing has been a mere symbol without substance. When Joseph Smith says that the power of truth alone will bring all nations under the gospel, Brody is good enough to correct him. Quote, this was only partly true. The legion now numbered almost 4,000 men, end quote. 
So the leader who had often ordered his own men to desist from conflict and readily admitted defeat when outnumbered, who on the same page is described as realizing that he cannot cope with the violence on the local frontier and will have to emigrate, and who suffered no illusions in things political, this same man believes he can subject all nations with a band of almost 4,000 men? For evolution had made him drunk with pride. Quote, almost never these days did Joseph step outside himself and look with surprise and humility at what he had become. End quote. How does she know? How can she check up on such a deeply subjective matter? By pure intuition, to be sure. Thus she and she alone can tell us that Joseph's remark, quote, no man knows my history, end quote, etc. was delivered, quote, in a wanton moment of self-searching, with a kind of wonder, end quote. Who said so? The reader who has planked down four dollars has a right to expect something better than proof that is always found to rest on nothing but the woman's instincts. When the expositor wrote, we will not acknowledge any man as king or lawgiver to the church. It was repeating a hackneyed Fourth of July phrase. Yet Brody sees in this, quote, an unmistakable allusion to Joseph's kingship, end quote, for which virtually no other evidence exists. If he was actually acclaimed king, why doesn't the expositor say so? Why does it attack his kingship by a perfectly familiar figure of speech and then say no more? The culminations of Joseph's megalomania finds him without courage, quote, empty of conviction when he needed it most, end quote. Again, we search for the little birdie that tells little Brody these things. Quote, he stood proudly before his men, betraying nothing of the tumult and anxiety raging within him, end quote. Since he betrayed nothing by look, word, or gesture of his inner feelings, we take the liberty to report that he was really thinking of a fishing trip made on his seventh birthday. There is no evidence for this, but, of course, his thoughts were perfectly concealed, you know. Is this history? To present as facts what a man might have, or could have, or even possibly would have been thinking on an occasion when, far from revealing his thoughts, he covers them up, is a good game. But a book built up of alternate layers of psychological speculation and haphazard sources that only support them if accepted with a certain peculiar interpretation, such a book is not history. In all her account of the evolution of things, Brody never once mentions the true name of the church, though great importance has always been placed upon it by the Mormons. For if she lets out that the church received its long title by revelation in 1838, her picture of endless and dubious gropings suffers an eclipse. The name describes a very specific thing and implies an unvarying and uncompromising program. It is undeviating and unshakable firmness of the prophet in following a single line that Meyer, our learned control, finds so astounding, and that makes the survival of the church, in his opinion, well nigh incomprehensible in view of its rigid and inflexible stand. For him, the whole significance of Mormonism in world history lies in the fact that it is one of the few revealed religions, like primitive Christianity and Islam, and is not essentially the product of evolution or study. Brody has missed this basic point entirely. She does not even seem to be aware of the fact that there are such religions, and that they have nothing in common with the run-of-the-mill cults of the sectarians and scholastics. Note on Caswell. In his Mixed Voices, this writer has pointed out that the Reverend Caswell published not only one, but no less than six conflicting versions of his famous interview with Joseph Smith. It is a moot question whether it is more reprehensible for a biographer to be ignorant of such a vital and readily accessible fact as this, or to conceal it if he knows of it. With characteristic cunning, Mrs. Brody cites as her source for the story Caswell's earliest version, that of 1842, while the tale she actually tells is the elaborately revamped version of 1851, to which she adds important touches of her own, not to be found in any of Caswell's accounts. A little of her vaunted primary research 
could have shown Mrs. Brody that while Caswell's Salter trick was carefully prepared in advance, the interview with the prophet never took place. When Brody Holds Her Peace Once you have explained Joseph Smith by the safe conventional rules of thumb, one, that he was neither as good nor as bad as he has been painted, and two, his whole career followed a perfectly natural course of evolution, you still have to explain his success. This Mrs. Brody attempts to do by demonstrating, one, that Joseph Smith had a great personal magnetic appeal, two, that his teaching was a product of New England and smelled of the frontier, three, that it was pleasingly materialistic and emphasized worldly prosperity, and four, that it was a potpourri of everything. The first three of these arguments break down completely in consideration of the fact that the church derived its numbers and its strength largely from European converts who had never set eyes on Joseph Smith, who were far removed from the Yankee tradition, and to whom the frontier was a foreign and a hostile thing. Incidentally, the church was never very popular in New England, and it was detested on the frontier. Moreover, the materialistic appeal was all against joining the church in their case. Brody must rest her whole case here on the economic urge, and she becomes frankly deceptive in speaking of, quote, phenomenal conversions among the poverty-ridden English workers, end quote. She assumes they were poverty-ridden because G.A. Smith describes great poverty in England, yet the one source she cites specifically states, quote, its converts are not made from the lowest ranks, but are mechanics and tradesmen who have saved a little money, end quote. The economic appeal, even in the church paper, was that offered by America, not the church. These people all paid their own way. It was quite possible for them to go to America without complicating matters and ruining their economic outlook by becoming Mormons. But why argue? The proof lies to hand, and Brody has passed it by in tiptoe silence. We refer to the journals and reminiscences of the converts themselves. These were not written for publication and are often very frank. The writers have not the slightest reason for concealing their interests and motives, and if they did not know their own strong minds, it is not likely that anyone else ever will. Almost without exception, they tell the same story. Joining the church meant loss of economic security and social status. One became a pariah of the worst sort. There were impassioned scenes in the family and brickbats in the streets. The prospect in America was not brilliant. They looked forward only to hardships and privations in the new land. If one wanted to go to America to improve one's fortune, there were certainly better ways of doing it than this making enemies of all the world. Of all this, not a word in Brody, only the insinuation that the people joined up to get rich. If the personality, American background, and materialism of Joseph Smith does not explain his success, it must lie in the secret of the theology, namely that it was, quote, a patchwork of ideas and rituals drawn from every quarter, end quote. To her, this is a mark of degeneracy, and she neglects to mention Joseph Smith's frequent declaration that he gladly accepts truth from any and all sources, for it must appear that Brody has made a great discovery. Now, there is no such thing as a completely original religion, and every religion, including Christianity, is full of things that may be found elsewhere. If Joseph Smith thought of the sky as being blue, so did the ancient Chinese. It is no condemnation of the teachings of Jesus that, as Justin Martry demonstrates at great length, they may also be found in the philosophers. But the mere throwing together of a potpourri of everything does not make a doctrine. In this regard, we must point to another remarkable, perhaps the most remarkable, feature of Mormonism, which our authority has completely neglected to mention. 
Experience has shown that no religious body, from the smallest country congregation to the Church of Rome itself, can subsist for long without finding itself under the necessity of interpreting the scriptures. The result is the history of dogma, but the Mormons have no history of dogma. There has never been a Mormon scholar. Learned men in various fields have been Mormons, but there are no experts on matters of doctrine. There has never been a council or synod to alter or even discuss any matter of doctrine. If Joseph Smith were to walk into a conference of the Mormon Church today, he would find himself completely at home, and if he were to address the congregation, they would never for a moment detect anything the least bit strange, unfamiliar, or old-fashioned in his teaching. Yet for all this incredible doctrinal stability, the Mormons have been, of all people, the least disposed to fight change. No one insists more emphatically on their passion for progress than Brody herself. Moreover, the saints have always had more of their share of crackpots, and these have always been given a hearing. Yet of all churches in the world, only this one has not found it necessary to readjust any part of its doctrine in the last hundred years. If we are to believe Mrs. Brody, it was the shrewdness and agility of Joseph's highly compensated type of reasoning, plus a great magnetic appeal, that induced people to swallow his doctrine as he held them spellbound from the pulpit. And when his magnetic person left the pulpit even for a moment, it left a void that they found intolerable. What then would be the first result of his death? Doctrinal chaos, of course. Why didn't the whole thing explode? Was it because Joseph Smith had left a legacy of written revelation? But every page of scripture is just so much more grist for controversy. Were people indifferent to matters of doctrine? Not when they would go forth by the thousands as unpaid preachers. The fact that everyone has a share in church work, though it makes for loyalty, should only lead to doctrinal confusion. Let it be borne in mind that the Mormons regard the heavens as still open, and every man and woman eligible to receive inspiration. How does Brody explain the fact that the doctrine which she claims was the hazardous outgrowth of complete opportunism remains the most stable on earth? She doesn't. What Edward Meyer sees in the Mormon doctrine is before everything else consequence, i.e. meaning consistency. To use his own words, that doctrine is, quote, absolutely literal, sober, and logical, end quote, verstandes gemeis. Moreover, says Meyer, the scientific aspects of the dogma, quote, in full agreement with the latter discoveries of science, end quote, may well be a cause of considerable gratification to believers. These impressive aspects of doctrine mean nothing to the glib and superficial mind of the modern English major, the copy-desk mind with its inevitable leaning towards journalism and its buoyant faith in accomplishing all things by the mere manipulation of words. Brody's silences are an eloquent commentary on the shallow thinking of the times. Note. Since Mrs. Brody's book appeared, a number of studies by non-Mormon writers, Cross, Davis, Armitage, etc., have shown that Mormonism was definitely not a product either of the Mormon frontier or of the revival meeting. Thus, two of Mrs. Brody's basic assumptions on which she counts heavily to explain her peculiar views of Joseph Smith and his work have been discredited. See our mixed voices. The Art of Insinuation, as illustrated by a few succinct examples from a highly reliable source. In 1835, Joseph Smith reports having given a brief sketch of his early life, including the first vision to Erastus Holmes. Brody objects, quote, but Joseph admittedly did not begin to write his history until 1838, end quote. We are to assume that the report must be a mistake. Only Joseph Smith is talking about a brief informal sketch, while Brody is talking about the formal church history, an entirely different thing. She insinuates that they are the same thing and that the prophet is lying. The mound builders actually resemble the Book of Mormon people not at all. Who said they did? The Book of Mormon tells of a people ages removed from the mound builders and very far away. 
Yet Brody insinuates that because the mound builders, of all people, do not resemble the Nephites, the Book of Mormon is a fraud. One of Brody's favorite insinuations is that Joseph Smith was a charlatan because he constantly used the language of the King James Bible, including whole passages from the ancient scriptures and modern revelation. That is the equivalent of accusing an author of stealing words from the dictionary. Jesus and the disciples constantly spoke the language of the prophets, not in the original, but in the religious idiom of their own time and place. Just so, the prophets themselves quote from the Psalms and the law. Now the religious idiom of the West was the language of the King James Bible. That was, and still is, the standard of formal English for great occasions. If Joseph Smith had been living in Germany, he would not have used the King James Version at all. He would have spoken Luther German, but that would not prove him a hoax and a plagiarist. Of course, Brody knows this, but she repeatedly insinuates that the use of Bible language by Joseph Smith implies fraud. Quote, foot washing was practiced on the Western Reserve, end quote. So what? What if it was practiced in Tierra del Fuego? Anyone can read about it in the New Testament. Confronted with the testimony of the eight witnesses, the lady neatly turns it aside with a witticism of Mark Twain regarding the prominence of the Whitmer family on the list. But if all the eight had been named John Jones, the document still remains to be explained. Brody tells a perfectly fictitious story of an attempt by Joseph Smith to walk on water, but dismisses it with the remark, quote, baseless though the story may be, it is nonetheless symbolic, end quote. The reader is told that though no justification exists for believing the story, Joseph Smith must always have been doing silly things like that, and that makes it symbolic. Why bother with mere symbols? Why not give the concrete examples? Can she do no better than to cite a tale that is known to be false simply because it symbolizes her idea of Joseph Smith? Very early, the prophet learned to use persecution as a means of identifying himself with the great martyrs, end quote. Now, the first thing any Christian thinks of upon being persecuted for his religion, the thing, in fact, which the Bible enjoins us to think of, is the assurance, quote, Blessed are you, for so persecuted they the prophets that were before you, end quote. Yet in Joseph Smith's case, this natural and Christian reaction is evidence to Brody of a singular vanity and shallowness. The case of Grandison Newell against the prophet is given at length. Then, quote, when the court convened, it was clear that he had no case, end quote. In the meantime, however, we are left with the impression that Joseph Smith was somewhat of a rascal. In the same way, J.C. Bennett's lurid description of the Danites and angels appear at length. Later, it turns out that Bennett is an, quote, unreliable witness to say the least, end quote. But meantime, it has all sunk in, and the reader is left with a definite impression that the charges may well be true. This is a favorite trick of Brody's, giving worthless but quite damning evidence at length, just for effect, and then refuting or qualifying the testimonies in a single brief sentence. The Brody evolutionary theory rests heavily on the word now. If it is written, he now refused to beat his wife, or he now ate eggs for breakfast, one naturally assumes that the subject formerly did beat his wife in the one case, and in the other that he formerly did not eat eggs for breakfast. That is what the words insinuate, but it is not what they say. Actually, the man may never have beaten his wife and always had eggs for breakfast. Every selected key event in the life of Joseph Smith, Mrs. Brody introduces with a now of this sort, making it appear in each case that the thing was occurring for the first time. For this she has no proof, of course, but the little now enables her to build up his career step by step the way she wants it. Super Psychology Mrs. Brody applauds the honesty of Josiah Quincy's conclusion. Quote, If the reader does not know what to make of Joseph Smith, I cannot help him out of his difficulty. I myself stand helpless before the puzzle, end quote. But not Brody. On no other evidence than Quincy's own, she tells us what he should have seen but failed to. 
when Jay Quincy reports that Joseph Smith joked with him about the ridiculous figure he must sometimes cut in the eyes of unbelievers, he simply notes that the prophet has the sense to acknowledge the humor of the situation, a risk no false prophet would take. This interpretation will never do for Brody. Let Josiah look again. Is it not plain that Joseph is expressing a mood of uncertainty and doubt? Likewise, when he says, quote, I do not think there have been many good men on earth since the days of Adam. I do not want you to think I am very righteous, for I am not. End quote. He is not just speaking plain truths. He is confessing that he has grave doubts as to his calling. In dealing with Emma, our author allows free reign to her woman's intuition. One day, Joseph was bantering with his wife while she was setting the table. Parley Pratt was present and everybody was jolly. Pratt asks Joseph why he does not eat alone like Napoleon, and Emma observes that he is greater than Napoleon, whereupon Joseph congratulates her on the wisest utterance of her lifetime. It is all very merry and typical. Brody often points out that Joseph Smith was a great hand for joking about everything, yet she does not hesitate to see in this episode a clear revelation of the prophet's vanity. When Joseph Smith faced Emma for the last time, quote, he knew that she thought him a coward, end quote. So Brody knows that Emma knew that Joseph knew what Emma thought? Is this history? There might be some merit in this sort of thing if, like the invented speeches of the Greek historians, it took some skill to produce. But, if anything, it is hard for the historian to avoid the pitfalls of such cheap and easy psychology. The business of the historian is to tell what happened, not what someone might have been thinking about what was happening. Does it take any skill or knowledge at all to write? Quote, the Book of Mormon must have been a source of secret worry, or Mormon rituals doubtless had its roots in the same unconscious drives that led the prophet to polygamy, end quote, or to appeal continually to a secret imponderable quality known as magnetism. At the end of the book in which he has leaned so heavily on the categorical must-have, our author displays an equal virtuosity with the categorical would-have. She tells us without a moment's hesitation just what would have happened if the prophet had not been killed. The saints would have followed him west. He would have lost some converts. His empire would have been more colorful than Brigham Young's. Emma would have followed him, and the Gentiles would not have been able to rejoice in her second marriage. This is history in the Brody tradition. The young woman who can tell us with perfect confidence just what must have happened and what would have happened is not one to be stopped by uncooperative documents and recalcitrant sources, and she is most at home when there are no documents at all. Note on mind reading. The eminent American biographer D.S. Freeman is reported to have said he knew where General Lee was and what he was doing every minute of the Civil War, but that he wouldn't dare presume what he was thinking at any time. Mrs. Brody's principles of research are the exact reverse. Though never so vague as to where the prophet is or what he is doing, she is never at a loss to tell us exactly what is going on in his mind. Quote, for the popular, novelized biography full of glib insights into the inner man, says the reviewer, Freeman has nothing but contempt. End quote. To this day, it remains unclear whether Mrs. Brody intended a serious biography or a novel. A Solid Contribution if anyone has a right to reject Joseph Smith's own story, it is also anybody's right to ask the skeptic for a more plausible version of what happened. Such a version Von Brody has bravely attempted to produce. She tells the plausible enough story of a guy named Joe, who walks and talks and laughs and looks just like Joseph Smith. Only there the resemblance ends. We know a butcher who looks just like the great Johann Sebastian Bach, and he walks and talks and eats and breathes, the very things that Bach did, only there is one slight difference. The butcher can't write music. Brody's Joseph is a real enough character. All the details are there except one. He can't do the things Joseph Smith did. The only things about Joseph Smith, incidentally, that really interest us. 
Brody's Joseph is decidedly not the man who produced the Book of Mormon, for the former is wildly imaginative, undisciplined, lazy, and short-sighted, while the Book of Mormon is the work, even if you take it as fiction, of an exceedingly sober, self-controlled, well-organized, and incredibly industrious brain. Brody's Joseph picks up ideas like a thieving magpie, throws them together haphazardly, and sells them from the pulpit. He is therefore not the man whose teachings are so well-knit and perfectly logical that they have never had to undergo the slightest change or alteration during a century in which every other church in Christendom has continually revamped its doctrines. Brody's Joseph is the man who works by personal magnetism and dispenses his far-fetched and jumbled ideas by rhetorical legerdemain. This is not the Joseph who won his following among the artisans and farmers of Great Britain, Scandinavia, and Switzerland, a finely disciplined, hard-headed, and Bible-bred generation who was looking for light but not interested in vaudeville or voodoo. Brody's Joseph appealed to the Yankee and the frontier minds. The real Joseph was suspected by the one and hated by the other and enjoyed his great success in distant lands and on the islands of the sea. Incidentally, no effort of the imagination can fit these islanders, or Europeans for that matter, into the contemporary American scene. Brody's Joseph announces, My kingdom is of this world. The real Joseph describes this world as the substance of an idol which waxeth old and shall perish in Babylon, even Babylon the Great. And he tells how the hour is not yet, but is nigh at hand, when peace shall be taken from the earth, and the devil shall have power over his own dominion. Joseph Smith's message was before everything one of warning, of clear specific warnings against the very things that are transpiring in our day. No man ever sized up this world better than he. Brody's Joseph is not the man who organized the church. That man always knew exactly what he was doing. Brody's Joseph never does. That man, from the first, sent out messengers with messages so crystal clear, so specific, and so unequivocal that it either convinced on the spot or excited paroxysms of rage. There was nothing hazy in what these men had to say, nor in the church they represented. Brody's Joseph lives and dies in a fog. Brody's Joseph never had the plates. The Joseph the witnesses talk about did have them. And as long as Mrs. Brody refuses to face the witnesses, her Joseph cannot turn the real one out of the doors. Brody's Joseph, riding with his fifty wives, is not the man whose conception of marriage so completely escapes her. Emma Smith and Eliza Snow were not acquainted with the oversexed rake that Mrs. Brody knows so well. Brody's Joseph, the crazy fool who is simply drunk with dreams of power and personal glory, has nothing in common with the Joseph Smith whose pronouncements in the campaign of 1843, still there for all to read, are models of wisdom and statesmanship that have excited the unqualified admiration of experts. Brody as good as tells us that the Joseph Smith that Josiah Quincy saw and admired is not the Joseph she has in mind. So we could go on, distinguishing between the two Josephs. That is just a way of answering the question we said at the beginning. Does Brody go too far? Too far is putting it mildly. The book is nothing but a mass of strained interpretations and limiting explanations, mostly in terms of a highly intimate and intuitive psychology. It would take more than the impressive padding of an appendix to support so much manipulating, unless the new and wonderful documents thus brought to light should turn out to be not merely rare, but actually have something to say. Like a buyer of first editions, Mrs. Brody is dazzled enough by the mere rarity of her finds to overlook the fact that they tell us absolutely nothing that was not known before. Still and all, the good woman's contribution is a real one. She has set about to answer the question, how can you explain Joseph Smith if you reject his own story? The result is surprising. Time and again, the discriminating reader asks in wonderment, can't the dear girl do better than this? 
Must it always be would have and must have and fourth dimensional psychology and Mormonism unveiled and reading between the lines of vindictive but ambiguous newspaper articles? If we ever had doubt about the real Joseph Smith, Brody's struggles have dispelled them. The question is no longer how can the world explain Joseph Smith, but can the world explain him at all? And Brody gives us the answer. It can't. It thinks Brody has done the trick and hails her with a prize. Nothing could more clearly reveal its own sad lack of resources or its pathetic eagerness to find some sort of explanation for Joseph Smith than this claim of such a poor effort to make seminar rhetoric sound like history. All his life, St. Augustine, the father of medieval and modern Christianity, wrestled mightily with the problem of working out a doctrine that would satisfy both reason and faith. Both Grabman and Gilson bear witness to the inadequacy of his solution, the former noting the saint's failure to answer any of the basic questions, which is ostensibly the purpose of the gospel to answer, and the latter pointing out the fundamental ambiguity of the answers he does give. It remained for later ages to try to hammer out a complete and convincing statement of doctrine, and they have no easy time of it. A long line of canons and decrees attests alike the determination and the failure of the learned divines to give the Christian doctrine a defensive and final form. From which we conclude it is one thing for the sweating revivalists to fling out his ecstatic pronouncements as they come to him in hot and frenzied disorder, and a very different thing to give logical and consistent form to those ideas. The gospel as the Mormons know it sprang full-grown from the words of Joseph Smith, it has never been worked over or touched up in any way and is free of revisions and alterations. Joseph Smith took the same elements that have been proven so recalcitrant and so hopelessly conflicting in the hands of the churchmen and threw them together with an awful lot of other stuff to follow Brody into a single wildly chaotic mess. And lo and behold, everything fell into line of its own accord. All the haphazard elements in the bewildering heap fitted together perfectly to form a doctrine so commanding that not even a hint of rhetorical paradox is needed to support it. And no Gregorian compromise with a pleasure-loving world has been necessary to assure its vigorous growth. The merciless logic of the Mormon doctrine made its strictly amateur missionaries from the outset the bane of the learned cloth throughout the world. What a piece of luck for Joseph! How her chuckle-headed, pipe-dreaming, glory-mongering hero ever produced a doctrine as wholly logical as anything done by a St. Thomas or a Calvin, and at the same time as vivid and intimate as the faith of the primitive church, is one of the more important issues our Sybil has avoided. Certainly her Joseph is not up to the task, and until a more likely candidate than the Brody mannequin turns up, we will just have to accept Joseph Smith's own story of what happened.